Well, welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, welcome to this, a, a very special show, a joint um, event that we're holding with the Foreign Press Association of New York and with our special guest, Kenneth Roth. Uh, my name's Mark Seddon. Uh, I used to work for the United Nations. I used to be a speechwriter for uh, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, and previously I'd been a correspondent for Al Jazeera Television. And I'm joined by Ian Williams, the president of the Foreign Press Association of New York, uh, a columnist, author, academic, and of course, Kenneth Roth, the man of the moment uh, from human rights. Well, uh, recently stood down uh, as executive director of uh, Human Rights Watch. And of course, Ken and his team over the years have been tirelessly exposing human rights abuses wherever they occur in the world, uh, from China to Russia, uh, wherever they may be, Israel, of course, uh, Hamas, uh, is an extraordinary um, spotlight trained daily on human rights abusers wherever they are active. Um, and of course, in recent days, uh, we've seen even more of uh, Kenneth than usual because what looked like a kind of slam dunk uh, fellowship that he was offered at Harvard at the Kennedy Business School was... Um, mysteriously, well not mysteriously at all, as Kenneth will tell us, but was suddenly withdrawn uh, by the Dean and it would appear that actually there's been, a, the, the, the real reason for this is uh, a fear that uh, donors um, may take their money elsewhere and pressure uh, put uh, upon Ken, essentially claiming that uh, Kenneth has been far too critical of Israeli human rights abuses. Um, well, we all know the truth of all of this, um, throughout throughout the past 10, 20 years, the, the laser light of Human Rights Watch has been focused, as we said, on countries and human rights abusers all over the world. And interestingly, just today, uh, the um, I think it's called the Harvard Crimson, the magazine of the Harvard University, reports that hundreds of affiliates, 360 affiliates, to be precise, have actually written demanding that the dean of the Kennedy School who rescinded the invitation for Kenneth to become a fellow should actually resign. So this is kind of a moving story. It's a it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's, it's, it's breaking news actually in many respects. Um, we wish Kenneth, of course, all the best, and because not only for what he stands for and what universities should stand for: freedom of speech, uh, academic rigor, the uh, really the strength to say to donors, "Sorry, you don't tell us." who we have as fellows, who we employ as academics. This is very important, not just for Harvard University, but for academic institutions all around the world. So thank you very, very much indeed, Kenneth, for joining us. Um, I'm actually going to begin by asking Ian, uh, as the uh, from the Foreign Press Association, Chair of the Foreign Press Association of New York, to um, begin and uh, ask Ken the first question. By the way, before we do, what we're going to say is, Please send in your questions. We'll try and get them to Ken. We want to um, get in as many questions as we can. But as I say, I'd like to just begin by asking Ian to kick it off, if, if you will, Ian, and uh, put the first question to Ken. Well, it's good to see you, Ken. And uh, as we were just reminded, I mean, this is, this is 30 years of talking about human rights. And I have to say, it's included the Balkans. It's included Russia. It's included Guantanamo and Iraq and uh, without fear or favor across the board because we have supported human rights not individual countries uh, 
which is a distance that some people find too far to t uh, something a leap too too far for some people. But in this particular case, I mean, all of us who've been involved in human rights issues and in journalism know that the question of Israel has been, uh, it's more than the third rail, that's only 600 volts. It's the 25,000 volt overhead cable in uh, in the US and we have seen now in Britain where um, there's nothing like an accusation of anti-Semitism to shut people down because... Um, if you deny it, it, you sort of reinforce the charge. It's like out of Monty Python. Uh, you've been wrestling with this for many years at Human Rights Watch, I know, and you've uh, you must have taken a lot of tightrope walking with the donors. But in, in this case, uh, could you let us know what the type of pressures that donors put on you about your selection of targets, or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, the old red diaper babies, uh, with threatening to withdraw checks if you criticize uh, Putin too much, or in this case, of course, where the criticism of Israel will get the checkbooks locked up. Yeah. I mean, Ian, this may surprise you, but I got very little donor pressure to, you know, with restrain myself, restrain Human Rights Watch from criticizing a particular government. And it's not that there are people out there who wouldn't have liked to do that. Of course there are. But it's just so clear that that won't work, that the people who you know prioritize the protection of country X just don't give to Human Rights Watch. You know, I just have always accepted that you know, these donors are, are not going to be contributors to Human Rights Watch. That's just the cost of upholding principle. You know, we don't exempt countries. I mean, as both you and Mark have said, we're very much an equal opportunity critic. Uh, we work regularly in 100 countries around the world in a conflict situation like the Israel-Palestine situation. We report on all sides. So, you know, we report on Israeli, Palestinian Authority, Hamas, Hezbollah abuses. That's just what we do. And, you know, every once in a while, there would be an existing donor to Human Rights Watch who was unhappy with the approach that we took to a particular country, usually Israel. So we would lose them. But that was pretty rare. Um, Mainly, it was a matter of just never getting the donor in the first place when whatever, you know. But, um, you know, one thing I was just crystal clear about is that we were not going to compromise the core principles. You know, that's Human Rights Watch needs its credibility as an impartial critic wherever the most serious violations occur. So, you know, principle number one is we are fact based. We try as objectively and partially as we can to find the facts. And principle two is we apply international human rights and humanitarian law to those facts and render the verdict as the facts dictate. That's what we do. We don't deviate from that. And so I didn't spend a lot of time resisting donor pressure because it was just a futile effort. People knew that if they were going to give to Human Rights Watch, they were endorsing the principles. If they didn't like the principles, they didn't give to Human Rights Watch. And that's fine. Yeah, Ken. I mean, for people watching who, uh, who who may not have been following all of the events, we are talking about a situation at Harvard University, the richest university in the world. I mean, uh, you know, it has budgets of a of a, of a of a of a princely state. Um, More than princely. Uh, right. People would be fascinated to know, I think, what exactly happened because you were offered the deanship. Um, everybody expected it to happen. It would be a logical thing, really, for the Kennedy School to be offering you this, especially with the human rights portfolio. Um, and yet you had an interview 
with uh, the school's dean, Douglas um, Elmendorf. And I, I gather that he, he asked you if you had any enemies, which yeah. was a question that would slightly alarm me if I was asked that, because I, I had to spend half an hour trying to, trying to remember who they all are. But let me fill everybody in on the, on the background. I think you know, most people know it at this stage. But in essence, um, I announced my resignation from Human Rights Watch in April to take place at the end of August. Um, and very quickly, the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy, which is one part of the Harvard Kennedy School, called me up and said, you know, would I be interested in principle in a fellowship to be a senior fellow at the Kennedy School? And I had been involved with the Carr Center informally for years. I actually held a big debate there, you know, many, many years ago. And, you know, I admired it. I, my plans during this current year were and are to write a book. And it seemed like a good place to do that because I would have colleagues to you know, kick ideas around, to, to, to read chapters. And so um, we kind of talked it over for about a month and I said, yes. So they said, look, the only you know, formality is to get the dean's approval, but it's an utter formality. You know, this is not a big deal. Um, and so that was that. And indeed it was so assumed that I would get it that I actually reached out to the dean you know, not for an interview. I didn't think that was what was going on. I reached out to introduce myself to say, I'm going to be there in September. It'd be good if we got to know each other. And so we um, had a half hour video chat in July and it was a perfectly pleasant chat. You know, it was really kind of normal. It just got weird at the end when he asked this question that you mentioned, Mark, um, did I have any enemies? Now, this is such an odd question to ask me. I mean, I have so many enemies. You know, that's what you do when you have a human rights organization. You <laughs> criticize governments. They don't like it. You turn into their enemy. And so mm -hmm. it's just that's a hazard of the trade. You just totally accept it. So I kind of, you know, laughed at him a bit. And I said, look, I have a lot of enemies. And I named in particular the Russian and the Chinese government because they both personally sanctioned me. I mentioned the Rwandan and the Saudi governments as two that particularly hate me. But then, you know, I had an inkling what he was driving at. So I said, and I'm pretty sure the Israeli government doesn't like me too. And that turned out to be the kiss of death. Mm -hmm. um, so we didn't really discuss it much further. He mentioned, oh, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, exert more control over these fellowships, you know, kind of a perfunctory statement. But that was it. I, I didn't think anything further of it other than it was a weird question. But two weeks later, the car center calls me up and they were incredibly embarrassed. They said, you know, the dean vetoed you because of your criticism of Israel. And I mean, I couldn't believe it, but that's what happened. Now, the, the big question is why? And the, you know, this dean, Elmendorf, does not have any public record of a position on Israel-Palestine. You know, if, if you Google him, it's this story that shows up, but, you know, but nothing else. So I don't think it was personal animus, personal prejudice. I don't think that was the factor. And the only thing that anybody has been able to think of that's a plausible explanation is donor influence. Now, we do know, and Michael Massing in his excellent expose in The Nation went into this in depth, there are you know, a number of big donors to the Kennedy School that are very pro-Israel. Um, and indeed, the Kennedy School has a history of inviting 
you know, senior Israeli officials, a, a retired Israeli general. They have a program where 10 Israeli officials show up every single year on a fully paid fellowship. So there, you know, there's a lot of money behind the Kennedy School that is pro-Israel. What we don't know is, you know, how was that influence exerted? Did Elmendorf call up certain donors and ask them their view? Did he just anticipate what their views were? We don't know. And Elmendorf isn't talking. You know, his, his spokesperson has said, well, we don't dispute any of the specific allegations, whatever that means. You know, I mean, everybody's accusing that this, you know, saying that this is donor driven. Do they not dispute that? I mean, that seems to be what they're saying, but they're not explicit. Um, but, you know, wh whatever happened, the perception is now out there that donors drove what basically is a violation of academic freedom. You know, that they were willing to say that we are not going to allow a fellow who has a history of criticizing Israel. And, and it's worth noting here, I mean, that, you know, Human Rights Watch's criticism of Israel is pretty mainstream. I mean, yes, we criticize Israel all the time because Israel deserves to be criticized, but, you know, we are hardly the most radical. Our rhetoric is very recent. It's very fact-based. We apply the law. Uh, you know, so what they're basically saying is, in fact, that may be the problem. I mean, as I think about this more, I actually think that it's not that we're so partisan. It's that we're so impartial and that it is the, the sting of an impartial group criticizing Israel that is much more deeply felt than criticisms coming from partisan opponents. And I actually think that's what's going on because, you know, they've allowed, you know, a handful of Palestinians to be at the Kennedy School. Uh, they've had people who are, you know, not just pro-Israel, but I think it's, it's exactly the respect that Human Rights Watch receives, I think justifiably, obviously, because of its impartiality, that people take our criticism seriously and they didn't want me with that credibility having a Harvard Kennedy School credential. So I think that's what this is about. Now, the, the big issue is what's Harvard gonna do? Because you know, right now this sends a really bad message. And I, I should stress that you know, I'm not the primary victim here. I mean, I have other opportunities. This is not going to impede my future. You know, I'll be fine. Um, my concern is younger academics who are going to take a message from this episode and say, oh my goodness, if I criticize Israel, that could be a career killing move. I could face retaliation. And that's a horrible message to send. So my question really is, you know, partly to Dean Elmendorf of the Kennedy School, but really to the Harvard president, because this is the credibility of Harvard that's at stake. Do you stand for academic freedom? Or do you stand for donors who can influence the intellectual independence of your scholars? And I don't know the answer to that because Harvard isn't talking. But what I hope they do is to say, we get it. We, blew, we messed up here. And we are going to clarify that you know, Harvard, the richest academic institution in the world, the institution that above anybody else could afford to be principled in defending academic freedom from donor influence. I would hope that Harvard says, we're going to do the right thing. And we're going to announce a policy. Donors are never allowed to interfere with academic freedom.
Administrators like Doug Elmendorf are never allowed to anticipate donor objections to interfere with academic freedom. We value the independence of our scholars above all else. That's what I'd like to see. So far, Harvard isn't talking. Mm. Ian? There is, um, well, it's it's not just academia. We have to be concerned about reporters as well. As you know, there was a junior reporter from AP who was fired uh, six months ago for because previously she had had tweets that were taken as pro-Palestinian. And it's exactly the same thing. It's the third rail or the overhead wire. But the other phenomenon you mentioned is the credibility of organizations like Human Rights Watch, because um, the retaliate, the sort of the fight back is interesting because they've got they're setting up their own NGOs. I mean, I think you mentioned them in your Guardian piece, uh, the NGO Monitor and UN Watch, which I've been following since they were set up. And as far as I know, they've never concerned themselves about the UN except in the Middle Eastern context. The only NGO monitor, the NGOs that they monitor are on there. So they're so obviously partisan, but the media always quote them as though they have the same sort of independence and uh, magisterial prestige as Human Rights Watch or Amnesty. Um, and in that sense, the media is making a rod for their own backs because these people are obviously, uh, wherever you are, <laughs> paid shills <laughs> for, for, um, for, for, the, for the government of Israel and its supporters. Yeah, no, Ian, you're absolutely right. In other words, I mean, there's, there's this cottage industry of small NGOs they always have neutral names to, you know, it's not like they say, you know, we're the Israeli Partisan Association. They have, you know, completely neutral names to cover up what they're really doing. But, you know, in their view, never in the history of the world has the Israeli government committed a human rights violation. And they devote, you know, all of their time or the vast majority of their time to criticizing anybody who criticizes Israel. And what makes this particularly rich is that they accuse people of bias. You know, I mean, it's hard to imagine, you know, a more biased set of people than the partisans who spend day and night defending the Israeli government and say it never does anything wrong. And they have the audacity to accuse other people of bias. So, you know, yes, this, I think, is, um, in a sense, it's an indictment of journalism, which feels that, you know, there has to be both sides to everything. And so you're always going to find somebody to represent the other side. Um, you know, I think mo most journalists know not to take these groups seriously but they feel obliged to at least represent the other side um, through their spokespeople. Mm -hmm. Ken, there, there are, we're getting quite a lot of uh, questions coming in, which is uh, which is fantastic. And by the way, I should say that Ken has joined us from Geneva um, and Ian has joined us uh, from New York uh, today. Uh, but if I if I may, Ken, I'm going to just I'm going to fire two or three at you. Uh, uh, the, the first is um, actually it's a is Kira. Kira says, uh, hello, everybody. Uh, imagine being fired for doing your job thoroughly and competently. Uh, Jane in New York asks, does Kenneth feel Harvard may U-turn on this decision in light of the massive outrage about his fellowship being rescinded? Um, Jane Elliott says, uh, all due respect to Human Rights Watch and Mr. Roth. Second question, Miriam in Cambridge, Massachusetts asks, how much of this does Kenneth think is down to Human Rights Watch's 2021 report exposing Israel as practicing the crime of apartheid? Does Kenneth think this is what is angering and scaring Israel's allies the most? So a couple of questions there for you, Ken. I okay. Yeah, well, first, I mean, do I think Harvard is going to do a U-turn? I mean, for the sake of academic freedom, I hope they do a U-turn. 
you know, and at this point, I mean, it's not about my fellowship. The year is half done. You know, I mean, if, if they turned around and offered it back to me tomorrow, I'd feel obliged to accept it and mm -hmm. spend some time there. But, you know, at this stage, you know, it's really about the broader principle. But that broader principle is important because if they just stand where they are with their head in the sand and reaffirm their decision, that does send this signal to academics that, you know, you're in trouble if you criticize Israel, and we really don't want that signal sent. Now, um, the the apartheid report. I, you know, almost two years ago, I guess April 2021, Human Rights Watch issued a report finding that the Israeli government is responsible for the crime against humanity of apartheid, and it was a very carefully researched report. It was more than 200 pages of you know, incredibly detailed facts that made a devastating case. And then the legal analysis, you know, this was not, we were explicit, it was not meant as historical analogy to South Africa. We applied international human rights law. There are two treaties that define what apartheid is. One is the Convention Against Apartheid. The other is the Rome Statute to the International Criminal Court. And so we took this legal definition and said, you know, you'll match the facts with the law. And frankly, there's no question. This is apartheid. You know, and we were not the only ones. In fact, the one, the Betselem, the very respected Israeli group, about six months before us came out, or I guess four months before us, came out with a, um, actually a tougher finding than we did. Um, and um, Amnesty a few months later came out with a very similar finding. Um, various Palestinian groups have had this. And so, I mean, at this stage, I think it's fair to say that the recognition that the Israeli government is committing the crime of apartheid has become the mainstream understanding within the human rights community. I actually don't know any serious human rights activist who's you know, involved in this issue who doesn't believe that. And you know, I think what, what brought us all to this recognition is that you know, for many years, the, the oppressive discrimination was present in, in the occupied territories. But you know, the, the answer to it was, oh, this is just temporary. Don't worry. There's a peace process. Once we have peace, it'll all go away. But, you know, more than half a century later, the peace process is dead. I mean, it's going nowhere. This new government is, you know, has zero inclination to do anything pursuant to the peace process. And so we all kind of came to the recognition that this wasn't temporary. This is just reality. This is what life is like. And we have to recognize that and call it by its name. This is not a temporary, you know, soon be gone factor of the, the, of the occupation. This is permanent apartheid rule. So we've all kind of came to that decision. Now, you know, was that the key for Harvard? I mean, again, I don't know, they didn't specify, they talked about criticism of, of Israel, they talked about bias, they didn't get into details. Um, the Israeli government certainly is not happy about the apartheid designation, although I should say that when Human Rights Watch issued its report, the Israeli government couldn't find anything wrong. You know, they, they, they couldn't find any facts wrong. They couldn't find anything wrong with legal analysis. They resorted to kind of the usual name calling. But, you know, I took that as a sign of victory. They, you know, we were pretty careful over this. But um, I think it's, um, I actually think it's more than that. I mean, I think that it is precisely the fact that Human Rights Watch is so respected as an impartial observer of the Israeli-Palestinian situation that makes our commentary so difficult for supporters of the Israeli government to accept. And I, so I, you know, I, I suppose I should take this as a badge of honor, but um, 
there are bigger principles at stake, which is academic freedom. So I'm, I'm not settling for, um, you know, a statement from Harvard on our, our reporting. I, I would like them to do the right thing. Ian. Well, this, it, it just struck me, there's the old, uh, one of Napoleon's marshals when he executed the wrong person said that this is worse than a crime, it's a blunder. And I'm wondering if Harvard and its uh, the Israeli supporters haven't done the same thing there because they've raised such a, um, an excreta storm <clears throat> in opposition that uh, Israel is getting, Israeli human rights practices are getting far more publicity than they would do otherwise. And right across academia and the media. So they have brought the issue to the forefront. Um, yeah. And if they've been cleverer, better practitioners of what they call Hasbara, they, they would have just kept quiet and hoped to go away and said it was just those people again. But by creating this storm, they're going to create a reaction amongst many people because it seems that now Israel and supporters are against not just human rights, but, but explicitly against human rights. Because as you say, their silence on the actual issues is, um, well, very eloquent. <laughs> yeah. Ian, I think you're right. This was a huge blunder on Harvard's part. Um, I, you know, my counterpart at Amnesty International, Salil Shetty, um, the prior, well, two prior secretary general, um, has been a senior fellow. I mean, he's not there currently, but he was there until quite recently for several years. Um, nobody noticed. You know, it was... Um, it was no big deal. And if, if Elmendorf, the dean, had simply let me do that, I, I suspect that it would have been the same thing in my case. But you know, either because he asked donors or because he was fearful of donor reaction, he did the wrong thing. Mm. And now it is completely backfired. Mm. Um, and you're absolutely right. You know, there, there's much more attention to um, not only the issue of academic freedom, but also Israeli human rights violations than there would have been if, if they just let me show up and work on my book at Harvard. Well, Ken, I mean, I was looking um, at this uh, Harvard Crimson, which is a great uh, uh, magazine of repute uh, and uh, accuracy. And essentially, last year, it was reporting that um, Harvard uh, apparently invests around $200 million in companies uh, that the United Nations has listed as being tied to Israeli settlements in the occupied territories. So in a way, what you've just been saying there, actually... Could be even more counterproductive for Harvard because there's going to be even more focus on where Harvard has been investing money and where the money is is coming from. But I've just wondered if I might bring in a couple more questions from our audience. Um, Ahmed in Nottingham in England asks, um, in a way, is uh, Ken's experience an extension of anti-Palestinian racism, where Palestinians and advocates are now even human rights campaigners can't even speak truthfully, truthfully about their lived experience or the situation on the ground without facing a backlash. I wonder how many thousands of Palestinians have lost jobs for just being Palestinian and talking about their oppression. Probably more a comment than a question. Um, here is uh, Robbie, Robbie Roy. I'm not sure where Robbie is, send, is, is coming from, where he's living, but Robbie says, how long does Ken think this pressure from Israeli, Israel supporters will work? Uh, as in, in his case and in others, uh, who will force them to stop? Um, and one more, uh, well, actually, Sam Bahur says, thank you, Ken, from Palestine. Your integrity stands above them all. Um, now, ah, Abigail 
Abigail Absilla Metza, she says uh, the New York Times hasn't yet reported on this, although the Washington Post has. I don't know. Is that the case, Ken? Do you know if the New York Times has been reporting on this? The New York Times is on the case, so I, I anticipate um, they will write soon. Um, and I have, actually haven't seen the Washington Post. I, I don't know if they just ran the wire story or what. Um, I haven't been contacted yet by a Washington Post journalist. Mm. So they may have just run the wire story. Um, I mean, the question, you know, how long will Israeli supporters go after this? I mean, you know, look at my Twitter feed. I mean, it's just they're endless. They just go on and on and on. And it's, you know, it's all the same things. You know, I'm biased. I'm anti-Semitic. I have Jew hatred. You know, it's um, and, you know, they, they kind of run out of things to say. Um, mm. And so I, I doubt they're going to stop because... You know, the raison d'etre of these little partisan groups is to keep doing what they're doing. And I've been their number one target for years now because I had Human Rights Watch. So I'm no longer at Human Rights Watch, but I, you know, I still matter to them because I still have a certain voice. I think they particularly hate my, um, my Twitter feed. Um, so I'm not surprised that they are going to keep at it. And I think that they, you know, probably deep down they realized that this was a huge blunder as Ian says and and just you know realize they're, they're losing this particular battle pretty severely but that doesn't mean they're going to just you know call it quits um they, they keep coming after me Ian well I'm thinking yeah you know the the, the point about Israel uh and, and its supporters is it's there is a central direction and they do direct it. The government has a Hasbara department and your Twitter feed sounds like a compressed version of one of the uh, speeches of the recent um, permanent representative of Israel to the United Nations. He's, he comes out with your Twitter feed from the station, I think, or from your, your opponent's Twitter feed uh, from, from the platform. But it's very much, there are grass... There are grassroots Israeli supporters across the U.S. who are, well, almost rabid. They really do not believe that it's possible to criticize Israel. Uh, it's a it's a quasi-religious aspect. So no matter what you do, we're never going to persuade these people. Um, it's the sensible people who are shouldn't be listening to them in academia, in in newspaper publishing as well, because it is as any reporter who's covered the area knows, very, very difficult to get uh, critical or objective reporting across. The very first piece I did from Israel um, uh, for The Guardian, um, it went through about six different stages. And uh, they told me that I'd been reported for anti-Semitism because I said I was bitten by a mosquito in Jerusalem. They get pretty desperate. You know they're told to criticize, but they don't know what to. They don't know what to criticize when they look at it. Um, so it's it it is a very sensitive subject. But any of us who, if, if we go along with it, then we're making it more difficult for your successors at Human Rights Watch or Amnesty or any of the other the CPJ, um, for example, to complain about uh, the next Palestinian journalist to be shot in the head because Israel doesn't do that. So how can you say that? Um, so it, it, I'm really pleased that you stood up and uh, put out in some detail the, the history of this. And it would be very interesting to see if Harvard mm -hmm. actually has 
uh, unless it's degenerated through millennia of evolution and lost its spine completely, whether it's uh, going to stand up on this and actually even give its excuses, no matter how pathetic they are, uh, because otherwise that they really stand condemned uh, in the world of academia and politics and human rights. Yeah. Ian, look, I, let me make two points. I mean, one is that um, you know Harvard should be capable of exerting leadership here. And, you know, of course, at this stage, now that it's all public, there will be criticism from Israeli partisans. They've got to be grown-ups about this and learn to take that heat, you know? I mean, if not, they're in the wrong business because leadership at Harvard should be able to say, these are the principles of academic freedom. We don't necessarily endorse the view of every scholar, but they have a right to say what they want on the Israeli issue. And they, you know, we are not going to penalize people or not hire people because they've taken you know, a strong factual stand on what's going on there. So that's what leadership is about. And, and if you know, their fear of the partisan criticism is what's driving this, I mean, that's just ridiculous. Um, I do think it's you know, less that than particular donors, but we don't know for sure because Elmendorf still has his head in the sand and is not telling us. Um, so the, um, the anti-Semitism church, let me pick that up because I do mm -hmm. think that, that um, scares a lot of people from criticizing the Israeli government's conduct. And I, you know, I think part of why I really drive the Israeli partisans crazy is because I'm Jewish. You know, and it's just harder to credibly get away with calling me anti-Semitic. You know, there was, you know, one critic today who said, well, I'm only thinly Jewish, you know, whatever that means, you know. <laughs> It's like my father was Jewish. You've got to put some more weight on, Ken. You need right, to there you go. Yes, right. really? Maybe that's the reference. Yeah, I got to put on a few pounds. Yes, right. But um, you know, it's my thin Jewish roots. I think is what they said. You know, but um, you know, that's um, but it, it sort of shows that they want to use that anti-Semitism slur. Um, it just is not going to work with me, and it's driving them crazy. So, Ken, I, I, I wonder if I can come in there because um, next week um, I'm going to be um, interviewing um, Kenneth Stern. And Kenneth, as you know, is the author of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which has been adopted by um, many universities in this country, also uh, other institutions and political parties. And um, he, he, I know, because he's written about it, and obviously he's agreed to come to be interviewed about it, has been extremely concerned that this definition could be abused in this way uh, to essentially silence critics of Israeli uh, apartheid policies or Israeli human rights abuses. So, what would you what would you say to those people who who have looked at this IHRA definition of anti-Semitism and have been trying to use this in the way that Kenneth Stern and many many others were afraid of? Yeah, I think that's a big problem. And, you know, of course, there was an alternative definition of anti-Semitism. I think it's called the Jerusalem Declaration or something like that, which is much more carefully drafted. But the IHRA definition has been, you know, you could say distorted or at least used to um, essentially turn critics of Israeli government policy and conduct into supposed anti-Semites. And I think it's just the sloppiness of the language in the IHRA definition or its openness to interpretation. But, you know, if you take a group like Human Rights Watch, which, I mean, the main way we function is by criticizing governments. You know, the entire premise of the human rights movement is you investigate, 
you expose, you shame governments and thereby pressure them to change. So it's all about criticizing governments. If that, in the case of Israel, somehow becomes anti-Semitism, you know, I mean, one is just preposterous, but there's something more serious here. Because if people begin to think that the very important concept of anti-Semitism, an ongoing, vibrant threat, if that is being cheapened to mean just criticism of Israel, people are going to start taking it less seriously. And that's a problem for the serious problem of anti-Semitism. So there is this like, you know, short-term use of the anti-Semitism slur to try to silence criticism of Israel with a real long-term consequence for the Jewish people who continue to suffer the consequences of anti-Semitism. Ian. Well, the, as I understand it with the definition, the, the Holocaust uh, commemoration definition was the examples that were added afterwards after Stern and the main draft was there. Uh, somebody probably innocently added a list of examples. They were told, produce some examples. And these are the ones that have been expanded to uh, basically to include um, any criticism of Israel. And of course, there's been a very heavy lobby to get it with the examples. They always say with the examples. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's not so much, I was going say, it's self-censorship. Because most of us in the human rights movement are still traumatized and appalled by the Holocaust and what happened in Nazi Germany on every level. And so this is this is very potent for inhibiting people's outspokenness on the issue. It, it's not just that you're scared of the personal consequences. It's, uh, it, it's like darkness at noon where the Bolsheviks delivered themselves to be shot because they thought it was the right thing to do. So we keep ourselves inhibited and because it's the last thing we'd want for our own consciences. It's it's a uh, you know like being accused of when did you just when did you stop beating your wife type of question. Yeah. And none of us want anything. None of us want in any way to feel that. And it does take a lot of um, sort of mental strife to overcome this enough to criticize Israel. I certainly found that myself to begin yeah. with. But see, I mean, Ian, that's part of why I feel the responsibility not to let myself be cowed by these critics. Um, I mean, I think you know that I actually entered into the human rights movement precisely because of the Holocaust, because my father grew up in Nazi Germany and fled in July 1938 as a 12-year-old boy came, came to New York. So I grew up with Hitler stories, and that was a big part of what pushed me into the, the human rights cause, because I wanted to avoid repetition of something like this. But, you know, I, there do seem to be almost, you know, two lessons taken from the Holocaust. You know, one is just to be tougher than the next guy and, you know, be indifferent to things like human rights that might constrain a tough approach. The other, you know, which is what I subscribe to, is we need to reinforce the basic norms of decency that the human rights cause represents so we don't get a repetition of these kinds of atrocities. Um, but there is a real split in the lessons to be drawn from the Holocaust. And I think we see that in, you know, those who are defending Israel, you know, regardless of what it does, versus the, who, those who try to hold Israel to the same standards as everybody else. Ken, um, we, we are beginning to sort of run out of time, unfortunately, but I've, I've got a, a couple more questions to put to you from our audience. Um, Farouk in London asks, can Kenneth Roth explain how Israel is not only committing the crime of apartheid in the occupied Palestinian territories, but also against Palestinians inside Israel itself? Um, 
Robbie Roy, I'm not really sure where uh, Robbie is, uh, is is getting in touch from, but uh, Robbie says, uh, Gideon Levy said to my surprise, most Israelis don't even pay attention to the abuse of the Palestinians. Uh, do you agree with that? Um, and here we have a couple of other comments. Uh, Shahad Abu Salama says, power to Ken for standing up for academic freedom and the truth. I hope, hope all these damning reports of Israel's apartheid against the Palestinians bring us closer to justice. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Mr. Roth, for your courage. Much respect. Uh, thanks for coming on this evening. Uh, thanks very much for coming on this evening. Anyway, just a couple of last questions there, and then I'll, 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 come, to, I'll come to Ian for any uh, final uh, question. Um, but over, over to you, Ken. I mean, Gideon Levy's observation, I think, is sadly true. You know, that um, many Israelis don't go to the West Bank. They certainly don't go to Gaza. They don't really encounter the problems there. They live their own life. You know, they avoid the newspaper accounts of it. So I think it is quite possible to live in Israel and just not have this be a big factor on your consciousness, um, which is what makes it easier to persist. Um, I think if if... You know, if every Israeli had to spend a little time in Gaza or, you know, even a little time in Janin, um, their feeling would be different. Now, um, the apartheid question, it's probably too complicated for the four minutes we have left here. But let me just say that um, there are slight differences of opinion among the different human rights groups about the exact locale of apartheid. Um, to give you kind of a, a very simplistic understanding of Human Rights Watch's take on this, there were three elements of the crime. We found the elements of those crimes, the crime came together within the occupied territories. So we were not opining on um, the state of things within Green Line Israel, where there seriously, there, there clearly is systematic discrimination. But there are others who have found that to be apartheid within Green Line Israel, and probably they're the best ones to ask that question. Was there something else I'm trying to remember? Um, um no, I think that covers it. Um, and I'll just throw back to Ian for, for your last question, Ian, if you will. Well, all of these things come together. There is a cycle on it. I was appalled, uh, was it last week or the week before, when so-called democracies voted against referring Israeli practices to the International Court of Justice. And, you know, it raises the question, first of all, what are they scared of? They know the answer is going to come. They know that, not because the ICJ is biased, because as Human Rights Watch has detailed, the facts are there on the ground. Mm -hmm. But countries like Britain and Canada and Australia that purport to stand up for democracy either voted against or abstained. And this practice is getting more prevalent across Western Europe, which makes it even more important that organizations like Human Rights Watch have an uninhibited say on it to mm -hmm. shame the Western governments that are expedient supporters of human rights, uh, including, of course, Britain, Australia, Germany. Uh, it, it, it is appalling when you study their voting record uh, on these issues. When they're expecting people to stand against um, Vladimir Putin for annexing territories and uh, terrorizing the inhabitants, why other countries shouldn't be held to similar standards? Yeah. And you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a lot of talk these days that, you know, when China or Russia are being discussed of the need to respect the rule, the rules based order. But obviously, you know, an essential element of the rules based order is international human rights law. Um, but 
those same governments that are pushing the rules-based order for China or Russia don't talk about those rules when it comes to Israel. They don't want an international court of justice ruling, defining how those rules apply in the Israeli context. And of course, you know, the other big question, because the International Court of Justice would be a civil proceeding. You know, it would basically be a, an advisory opinion from the court. But there also is a potential criminal case in the offing by the International Criminal Court, a separate institution, which has jurisdiction because Palestine has joined the court. There is a formal investigation that has been opened. There actually is a pretty easy case to be made, um, you know, toward Hamas for the indiscriminate rocket attacks in Israel and for the Israeli government for the building of the settlements, which are a clear violation of Article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Convention and a war crime. So this is not a difficult case to make. The question is, does Karim Khan, the chief prosecutor of the ICC, does he have the backbone to do the right thing and to pursue this case? So this is a big open question. It is indeed, Ken. And um, this great great push for consistency across uh, international law and human rights is is actually one of the most powerful arguments that can be deployed and is being deployed, it seems to me. Um, it's, it does require such a fantastic degree of consistency because, for instance, we know just in passing that the United States has accepted that uh, Morocco's occupation of Western Sahara is acceptable. I know this is an issue close to Ian's heart, but... Um, Absolutely. And look, Ken, thank you very, very much. And, and thank you also, Ian. Um, Ken, we, we wish you all the very best. We'll, we're going to be watching very closely what's happening over the next few days. We hope um, justice um, will prevail. And we hope to see you take that fellowship at Harvard with a full explanation as to why that absurd decision was taken by, um, uh, by, by the university. So, Thank you so much for, for joining us this evening. Thank you to all of you who've, and I'm so sorry we couldn't get through all of your questions. Uh, so sorry, because we had so many of you wanting to get in touch and ask those questions. But uh, uh, thank you once again to, to, to Ken in Geneva, Ian in New York. Uh, and until next time, it's goodbye. Thank you, and we all 